Hey, uh, John, Rachel. Yep. What's up? I have a confession to make. Yeah? I'm type A. Like, really? Yeah. Like, like, um, I like to control things. You know, I'm a chill dude, but on the inside, I, I want to do a lot. I want to accomplish a lot. And I'm a little type A. So on the interior of your chill dude exterior, you're a big old stress ball. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I know it probably comes as a surprise to you, but it feels really good to get it off my chest. It's okay, Jeremy. I'm a stress ball too. I know. I watch you. I see you. Oh. Rachel doesn't hide hers very well. And yeah. John wants to think that he's type B, but I he's... Am. No, he's t- for sure so type, not a. type A. Maybe I am a denier. Like, you should watch him like in his uh, his task manager that he has. <laughs> Just because my task manager is really nice and tight most of the time does not mean I'm type A, does it? So I wanted to talk about this with some of our audience. If you f- consider yourself type A or, or if you don't, if you're, if you're type B, I don't think it really matters. All of us early in our careers, middle of our careers, late in our careers probably have something that we want to accomplish. We have goals. We have things that we want to do. And this means that we commit to things. We want to be the person that people come to when they need help. We want to achieve and do more to some extent. And for us in critical care, where it's already a stressful job, committing to these things often causes more stress, at least for me. And so the concept of wellness comes up. Man, I swear, if I hear another wellness talk, another burnout talk, I think I'm going to be burned out. What I think is funny about wellness and burnout and stress and all of the self-help books that exist out there is that for a lot of us, the etiology of our stress is having a lot of things to do. But for a lot of the people who are trying to answer what to do about stress and burnout, the answer is, what else can you do? As in, we already have a lot to do and that's why we're stressed. And so we're trying to figure out what else we can do to be less stressed. My hope today is to have a candid conversation about the reality of our careers, our meaning me, Jeremy, John, and Rachel. And I want to answer some questions like, what kind of commitments should we actually be making and what should we be saying no to? How do we stay on top of our work? And then through all of this, how do we have an honest conversation about our stress so that we can not only have healthy careers, but also have healthy lives. So we could be clear from the start. We are not here to give you the answers that will solve all of your problems. Rather, we want to share our struggles and experiences in hopes that something might resonate with you and help you move forward in your career. So I want to dive right into it and start with this question, which is a relatively big one. For those of us who are in the phase of building our careers, what kind of commitments should we be making? What should we say yes to? And what should we say no to? So when you asked that question, I immediately thought of one of my favorite books by one of my favorite authors. And the, the author is Cal Newport. The book is called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And basically the whole book is about the question you just asked. So I highly recommend reading it. Or if you're you know lazy, go listen to a podcast summary of it. Uh, is, that, is that what you did? Maybe what I did. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's still an awesome author. So he first off, he starts by talking about this myth that we should all just find our passion. You've all sat in your high school or college graduation where they were like, just go out there and find your passion and do it. And we've been told that our whole lives. Like, 
You can do whatever you want, set your sights on it. You can achieve it. Just go, just go find your passion. But what is really our passion? 10 years ago, did you know you'd be where you are standing here with me podcasting today? 10 years ago, my passion was hot Cheetos and Xbox. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So no. Right. Mine was uh, mine was football mostly. So what he talks about is it's not like there's some perfect fit job that is your passion out there and you just got to find it and plug yourself in. And now all of a sudden you're automatically in the perfect job and passionate. There's a lot of themes of this in the grit book by Angela Duckworth as well. So good. Another great book to read for this kind of stuff. But as you start working towards whatever finding what your mission is in your current job, you'll end up finding that you become passionate about your current job along the way. And so as far as what commitments you should make, he talks about early in your career, your goal should be building your career capital. So up front, if you're new in your job, you've been there six months, a year or two, you don't have any career capital. You can't really control anything in a business sense. It's a little different in medicine, but not really. Uh, you don't have any capital to use or expend. So up front in your career, if this is your goal, you should take commitments that grow and build your career capital. So what does he mean by that? Master skills that make you unique, that make you valuable to your organization. So if a commitment gives you a new skill, you should absolutely consider doing it in that situation. So I'm going to get a little vulnerable here, I, I guess, and share, you know, early in my career, I felt like that. I was the person saying yes to everything. I was the yes man. And in the one sense, yeah, I built some really solid career capital. I became a really talented educator. I practiced my procedural skills. I edited videos and edited audio, and I really built my skills and demonstrated my worth demonstrated my career capital. But at the same time, I had this sinking feeling that if I ever said no to anything, the opportunities would no longer come to me. And I found myself in a place where I was overcommitted to too many things. How do our early career individuals figure out if it's okay to say no? Do you have to say yes? Is, does this career capital concept mean that you have to say yes to everything? Well, I definitely don't think so. You can ask yourself, does this commitment I'm going to Bring, does it give me a new or valuable skill? Stuff. So I think one thing important with that too is at the beginning of your career, you feel like saying no will automatically kind of put you in the hot seat and you'll almost preemptively put yourself in situations where you're forced to say yes. So recognizing when that happens and being able to back off from that. And I, I just want to eliminate any doubt. You know, if you say no, it's not like your career is going to come to a screeching halt. It's okay to say no when people ask you to do things. There's been a number of concepts and a number of podcasters that have talked about this. There's been a number of podcasters who have talked about this idea that you should ask yourself three questions. And those are, do I want to do this thing? Am I going to get paid for it? And does it help other people? And if you're taking a look at this task that you were asked to do, and you're only at a one out of three, you probably shouldn't do it. Two out of three, you should consider it. And three out of three, yeah, you should really strongly consider saying yes. But at the end of the day, you don't have to say yes to every single thing that somebody asks you to do. So as somebody who is frequently looking for to grow new leaders and grow new 
educators. I'm frequently tasked with finding people to do tasks. And so you're right. Saying no to everything is totally acceptable. I can find a different person to do it. My only little devil's advocate there is if you do say no to everything, at some point I'm just going to stop asking. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. But if you get to a different point in your life where now you are able to take something on, don't be afraid to come back to me or whomever else is in my situation and ask us, hey, do you have anything for me to do? I love when people ask, do you have anything for me to do? Because I got lots of stuff for you to do. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, so it sounds like communication's the important piece here. Making sure that you're saying no, but communicating that it's not necessarily that you don't want to, but you can't. I, I think a good way to communicate that is saying like, I would love to, but I, I can't. I think being honest about it is important. I think that too often people uh, in our modern technology area just kind of avoid the question. I'd rather someone just be straight up front with me and say, I don't think I can commit to that right now for the following reasons. That's great. That's a good answer. Yeah. How do we know if we're committing to too much or I guess even how do we know if we're committing to too little? Well, I'll ask the three of us. Do we all <laughs> feel like are each of us currently overcommitted? I am overcommitted. Rachel? Yeah. yeah. No, I am. I am perpetually always overcommitted. So what I mean, what is that? Do you enjoy this idea of being overcommitted? Is that is that is that a. Is that just a product of our poor planning or what? Uh, it's it's so many things. I think it's the types of people we are and our drive to be better, which is a blessing and a curse. I think it's the achievement part of our personalities. I think a lot of it, I know me personally, if I'm not overcommitted, I almost feel like I am not stepping up to my potential. Like I'd rather feel stressed understand that I'm overcommitted rather than be undercommitted and feel almost useless in a way, which is inappropriate in every sense. But I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and two, two kind of thoughts about it. Number one, I, I think the area for me that growth happens is when I make myself a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. If I'm constantly doing things where I don't feel like the fire is turned up, I know that I'm not growing. Mm -hmm. But that said, I need to be on the lookout for unhealthy overcommitment. And that line I think is really fine. And I've crossed into unhealthy a number of times and then I've crossed back into the like just uncomfortable enough. And for me, it's a constant like uh, evaluation and trying to figure out what things are really additive to my life and my career and things that I can commit to and do well, as opposed to committing to too much and not doing anything well. Right. I think another easy answer you hear a lot, but it's hard to apply, is if you're going to say yes to a new commitment someone is asking you to do, ask yourself before you say yes, what am I going to give up to do that thing? What am I saying no to to take that thing? Especially if you're like us and you're already feeling overcommitted, you have to give something up, take something new. So too, uh, we are too quick to just take on a new task and figure out down the road how much time it's going to take. Yeah, determining um, the consequences of taking it. Absolutely. I forgot the name of the fallacy, but there's a human uh, psychology fallacy that we also massively underestimate the time it takes to do something. When we're taking on a new task, we, whether we know it or not, are doing a time assessment of how much time that new commitment's going to take us. And we underestimate it, I think last time I looked, psychologists think by about 50%. Wow. It's actually called planning. 
the planning fallacy. fallacy. That's it. Planning fallacy. fallacy. Wow. Very yeah, simple. I, I was expecting like <laughs> See, a, weird, <laughs> a weird name or something. <laughs> the one thing I was going to say in this era of frequently talking about burnout and your hospital making you go to seminars about burnout and, uh, and all which, of that. Which doesn't help with burnout at all, by the way. Right. And no one <laughs> sat in a, in a burnout PowerPoint presentation and thought, you know what? This is really life-giving. <laughs> I couldn't even say the next word. It's <laughs> life-giving. I think we can also go the other way. And I think frequently the phrase work-life balance gets used as an almost, I don't want to do anything but the basics of my job kind of phrase. And it's not that. I, I've come to think for myself that everyone has a different work-life balance. And my work-life balance may be different than Rachel's or Jeremy's, although with the three of us, I think it's pretty much the same. Unfortunately. Uh, (laughs) But some people have different ones. And so a work-life balance fit that's right for you is not the same as your colleagues. It's something to think about. I've heard a lot of people talk, instead of uh, saying work-life balance, saying work-life integration. Yeah. Because the inherent nature of life, you know, theoretically, best case scenario, you got eight hours to sleep eight hours to work and then eight hours to do whatever you want. Well, guess what? You got to drive to work. You got to prep lunch. You got to prep whatever else that inherently leaves you unbalanced and probably in favor of work and not in favor of sleep. If you're a classic Monday through Friday kind of person, or even if you work shift work, you know, you're constantly thinking, constantly emailing, and that eats into your time. So work-life balance, even if you pretend it's a thing, it's not a thing. The question is, are you integrating your work and your life in a way that is, you know, concurrent with your goals and in a way that's consistent with how you actually feel. Exactly. No, I agree. And I think in the life piece, how do you, if your work-life balance currently with what you're doing, whether you're new in your career and trying to gain career capital or you're overcommitted or whatever you're doing, if you're spending more time in work than you are in life, one of the things to think about is when you are spending time in life, be present in that life. Put your phone down, play with your kids, spend time with your spouse, significant other, uh, being actually physically present in life rather than just thinking about work or scrolling, whatever. Now, that dovetails really well into this next section, which is productivity. And so I want to put each of you on the spot and ask your top productivity uh, pearl for our listeners out here, really answering the question, you know, so we've found all this stuff that we want to commit to. How do we stay on top of our work? Do I, do I have to go first? It's hard to do still. Yeah. So for the listeners who don't know, I am a huge productivity nerd. I have spent so many hours listening to productivity podcasts that it is way beyond productive and is now an unproductive. <laughs> can, I, can I just, uh, I, I think John is not doing uh, himself any justice or actually describing the nature of his productivity obsession. I have personally seen his to-do list and he has a whole to-do list on productivity podcasts uh, on productivity. So it's like a a meta. He's trying to be productive to listen to things about being productive and scheduling them so that he can be productive about actually learning to be productive. Yeah. I can't really uh, (laughs) add to that. He's he's not wrong. (laughs) Uh, so distilling to my top couple of tips is really, really hard for me. I would say I'm a really big believer in getting things done by David Allen. If you haven't read it, check it out. Uh, there's several foam episodes about it in MCRIT, for example, you can check out, but I think one concept of his that gets lost in the whole five step stuff is the whole purpose of it, of any of this 
writing list, task management, whatever, is get stuff out of your head. You'd be surprised what you can occupy your brain power with. Like, oh, I got to pick up cat litter on the way home from work. That should not be in your brain. Your brain should not be thinking about cat litter. Is that a reference to me? (laughs) (laughs) I know you got to pick up cat litter, Rachel. (laughs) Uh, And so... But it's so like you're focusing on somewhere using some percentage of your brain power on that that should be used to solving life's problems, ICU problems, anything better than picking up cat litter. And so getting that stuff out of your brain into a trusted system that you review regularly, that's the key of any sort of task management system. So for you, that means like making a to do list writing things down. If an idea pops in your head like, oh, I need to write this podcast episode, instead of ruminating on it, you're going to write it down and have a planned time to revisit it. If you know that you need to go buy milk from the grocery store, instead of sitting and ruminating and trying to remember the milk, you're just going to go ahead and write that down. Absolutely. And you will be surprised if you don't review whatever that list is regularly. It goes right back in your head again. And all of a sudden you're keeping track of all your commitments in your head which that's not what your brain is making for. Your brain is made for thinking about complex issues, not about remembering mundane stuff. So John, a lot of what you said, I strongly agree with when it comes to writing things down. So I'd say other than that, my number one thing that I focus on when it comes to productivity is recognizing that having a productive life involves periods of downtime. People always think of a productive life as constantly being go, 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 and they don't plan to have that time to actually chill out, even if that means sitting on your couch and staring at the wall. I think it's really, really important to integrate. And it's really important to be able to sustain a life where you are productive. In that last paragraph, you just made me think about two more Cal Newport books. No. Can you tell he's my favorite <laughs> no. author? No. <laughs> so when she talked about staring at the wall, when is the last time you just sat in silence? Or when was the last time you were actually bored? Honestly, so I've deleted social media off my phone for the past 48 hours. Nice. Jeremy Amaya. Yeah. Brilliant. I literally, I've has not deleted yeah. social media. Yeah, which is uh, wild. I honestly have found myself picking up my phone to go look at something and realizing I don't have these apps on there. And then I just put it down and stare at the wall. And it's actually been really mentally freeing. And this is the person who would have never said that ever, 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 ever. Uh, it's actually really nice to stare at the wall and just think. One of the things that really resonated with me is thinking about scheduling downtime. You know, the brain is not very good at maintaining attention for a very long period of time. There's one sort of, uh, you know, productivity camp of people who do this thing called the Pomodoro method. And basically what that is. That's from Deep Work by Cal Newport. Nice. Is it really? <laughs> oh, does he Cal just Newport talk about episode. it or is that the etiology of Pomodoro? I feel like Pomodoro goes deeper it's like than one that. Section. It's one of the things. But anyway, what this is, it's uh, it, there's like a, a tomato timer. I think Pomodoro has some relation to tomatoes or whatever, but it's a 20 minute timer. And so you set this timer for 20 minutes. And the idea is you don't ramp up your work. You don't like pull up your emails and pull out all this stuff. You set a timer and then you do the work that you set out to do. You do hard work for 20 minutes, knowing that at the end of that 20 minutes, you have a scheduled however long break you want, two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes. But that's when you stop and you do the things that you actually want to do, right? So it's 20 minutes of deep work productivity and then rest. So scheduling rest into your day, but also scheduling rest into your work, I think is a really powerful tool. And I think not judging yourself for that rest either. There is a stereotypical definition of what rest should be like. You should go home and take a bath and do a face mask and you should go running and you should do this. But it's whatever your definition of rest is, even if that means it's watching Jersey Shore or something. 
Is Jersey Shore still even a thing? I it's back. Is it really? It's back. I saw a commercial. It's coming back. It's oh. either Heisler to know the trash TV. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, is when you're talking about rest, I think the other thing to not forget is sleep. So I think a lot of times as good old-fashioned Americans pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to see how much we can get done today, the area that's easy to cut in that eight-hour, eight-hour, eight-hour section Jeremy talked about is sleep, right? Cut your sleep down to four hours if you feel okay. That's a lot more productivity time, but that is really bad for you long-term. Silent killer. Listen to any of our sleep episodes if you need evidence for that, especially the one with Michael Grandner, the investment in sleep. He talks so much about this. You don't even realize how sleepy you actually are when you're sleep deprived. So cutting into your sleep time to be more productive is not the answer to any of these questions for I, sure. I think you delude yourself into thinking you do better work by cutting your sleep too. I, this is, I feel like I'm just getting vulnerable on this whole episode. I've listened to my own lectures that I've given after I have not gotten a good amount of sleep and I can notice phrases that I say that demonstrate that I'm grumpy or things that I don't explain as well if I had gotten a great night of sleep. I don't do good work or I don't do as good of work as I could do when I'm not sleeping well. It's just it's just being honest. Yeah. No. Full disclosure, glass houses. I stayed up too late writing one of these <laughs> podcast scripts last night. So um, we, we are not perfect on happens. this show by any <laughs> means. So my productivity tip goes pretty hand in hand with Rachel's. And I think it's if I had to summarize it in a word or a number of words, it's work-life separation. I think so often life and work can commingle, and this can manifest in checking Facebook while you're doing work things, or it can manifest in answering emails while you're at home trying to spend time with family or friends. I think the more that you can separate those two things, the more effective you'll be in both. So please don't delude yourself into thinking that you can write a solid paper or do great studying while you're texting all your friends or checking your notifications. It doesn't work. And in the same frame, don't think that you can be a good friend if you're sitting there trying to answer emails at work. It also doesn't work. The more you can separate those, the more effective you'll be in both camps. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jeremy, when he's saying work-life separation, which I completely agree with, by the way. I don't think we're of the era of the classic days where you could go work in a coal mine, clock in, clock out, and not think about work again until the next morning. These may be micro moments of separation, really, between work and life, but they should be there in whatever form you can get them. So despite living a perfect life of the perfect amount of commitment, of the perfect amount of productivity... The unfortunate reality that we all face and will continue to face is stress. It's going to happen. Unless we somehow figure out how to not be phased by anything that happens, we are going to be stressed. So how can we manage our stress? Is the answer to just do more? Is that it? What, what is something actually practical that we can give our listeners to chew on as they think about the concepts we talked about in this episode? I don't think I'm going to start with this one because I, I don't think I have the answer to that question. Heavy on the productivity, real light on the stress management. <laughs> Hadn't got to that level of research yet. <laughs> Still working on productivity. Uh, well, I think one thing that a lot of people struggle with, especially the type A people, us three, for example, is a lot of people are very much not okay with their stress. Like the fact that they're stressed stresses them out more. So I think accepting and relishing the fact that you're stressed 
helps you kind of move on from it. Because if you go into this cycle of, oh, why am I so stressed? I shouldn't be stressed about this. I need to get better at this. What am I going to do? And it just spirals and out of control into an explosion. I have two things. I do think we should be taking time to stare at a wall. And in that time when you're staring at the wall, I think you should be honest about how you're feeling. I think you should be willing to recognize and admit that you're stressed. That's my first point. And my second point is... I know you want to demonstrate to everybody that you're big, bad, and strong, and amazing, and you are. To all of you listening, you are big, bad, strong, and amazing, but... All of them? All of them. Every single one. Every single one. Motivational talk by Jeremy. Yeah. But your best looks different on every day, and some days you just don't have it. And it's okay to need to talk to other people, and I think that you should talk to other people if you're feeling stressed. You shouldn't just try to hide it and run away from it because it's not going to work. It will always catch up with you. Absolutely, yeah. Be honest. Thanks for talking to me, guys. I was feeling stressed before this. You're welcome, buddy. <laughs> Feels so good. So you guys think the answer to stress is take a vacation? Ooh. I, I think in some instances, yes. I don't think, I don't think a vacation is bad, but if you leave your stress, you go on vacation and your work email piles up, and then you come back to stress, and it's a bunch more stress and a bunch more things that you have now need to catch up on and commit to, I, I don't know that a vacation's entirely the only answer. I think there's more things you need to do in the moment. I was going to say, I don't know about you guys, but the week on vacation, I feel pretty good. week I get back, I feel pretty bad. Not so much. What's the saying? There is, I should say, there's never a person who needs a vacation more than the person who just got back from one. Mm, mm. That's pretty good. You know, I, and for me, I, I know that I hate when people say, you know, if you're stressed out from all the things you have to do, why don't you do this? I do like working out. I do like being active. I do like doing the things that I love, but I, I don't have a definitive answer for how to manage stress. I do think that if I can commit to less and if I can be more productive in a way that fits my life, that my stress does go down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do think the only thing I can add to this topic is, is looking at your commitment list and re-asking some of those earlier questions we asked ourselves. So look at your commitments and say, which one of these are, am I passionate about? Which one of these are driving me uh, to be better? And if you have a commitment that answers none of those questions, then cut it. You'll start feeling better instantly. And also separating your commitments, personal and work commitments because you know we think of this when it comes to work commitments but your personal commitments you also have to triage like this oh and, yeah you know it is absolutely easy to overcommit in personal stuff as well so i hope this was helpful for you you know we took a step back and wanted to talk about things like wellness and burnout but all three of us have been not well and burned out by the silly conversations we're having about burnout so here's our candid take on everything. We don't know. We have no idea. But maybe we can start a conversation so that we can all be better. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading. And calm down. And calm down. <laughs> Just get over it. 